the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Alec Perry and this is Thrill of the Hill. In this episode of Thrill of the Hill, I sit down with John Smith. John is a dairy farmer on the Kintyre Peninsula in the southwest of Scotland and one of the contributing voices in the 1.5 degrees in agriculture report. And we'll be discussing potential avenues for Scottish government as they devise climate policy while tackling biodiversity decline in Scotland. Hello, John. How's it going? Hello there. Thanks for uh, for being with Thrill of the Hill today, John. John, do you want to just give a little bit of uh, a background intro into to how it is you became involved with the project and uh, a bit about what you do at Drummolay? Fine. I, well, I guess we were dairy farmers. I've been a dairy farmer since since I left school. It's, I guess it's probably all that I really wanted to do. Um, I started attending first milk meetings or, or at that time Scottish Milk Marketing Board meetings before I even left school when I was 16. And sadly, I'm uh, uh, going to be a bit older than that now. But anyway, I was always involved in milk and, and, and the industry and what have you. And then I got involved in the NNFU at a later stage when I was finished my young farmer's career. And I uh, actually chaired the Legal and Technical Committee for five years. And I guess it was at that point I probably got to know Nigel Miller fairly well. Nigel went on to be president, and um, I was on his board of directors for a good number. For well, I did the five years, uh, then and then a couple of years out, and they were needing somebody to come and chair the milk committee, and uh, I was invited to come and chair the milk committee, and I, I was done my second two years on the milk committee, and it's quite intensive on there, and there's a lot going on at home. But Nigel asked me if I wanted to be kind of dairy lead for the Family 1.5 committee. And, yeah, it's been hugely interesting. And uh, for those who are unaware of the 1.5 degrees in agriculture report, do you want to just lay a bit out of the report? How, how did it come about and and uh, what are some of the, the key findings from the report? Well, I guess the, what makes the Family 1.5 com- report committee kind of different and that, yeah, there's there's quite strong NFUS and, and past NFUS farming representation, but we've got the likes of Stephen Thompson from SRUC, we've got Professor Jeff Sim from Edinburgh Uni, you know, Dave Ray, uh, Dr. Dr. Sheila George from WWF. That's just to name a few and, and a number of really, really um, it, uh, Andrew Barber. Like you know, he he's a, he's got a PhD in forestry and what have you. It's a much broader church um, panel committee. At the end of the day, you know, the advisors advise, but the government ministers will have to decide. And by using the likes of a panel that's slightly broader church, as I say, you know, it's got to be slightly more independent. You know, and and. Look at look at look at look at the 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 whole the whole economy the whole industry. Well, you know, as far as it goes, there's almost like 
you know, a simultaneous equation going on here, you know, about, you know, protecting the environment and obviously hitting 1.5, but we've got all the biodiversity. But we've also got to feed the population. I can run and a lot of the stuff I sign off. We need to provide, you know, an adequate supply of affordable food to feed the nation. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, I, I just recently recorded a podcast with one of our beef consultants, um, and that was something that we touched on, this need to tackle climate change, biodiversity decline, but also not to compromise ourselves in terms of productivity. That's, you know, the, the, you know, it's about the simultaneous equation to make sure that, that you know, like, Charging on in one direction doesn't have a you know too adverse an effect on on, on on another sector and taking it through carefully and interesting if we'll probably cover it later on you know to say that, you know we've got a target of, of having a report by 2024 the whole thing is evolving you know a new research comes out new understanding come out and frankly Although we're getting through some of the research, it will continue to improve, and it will it will need to be fine tuned as, as 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 we progress, and we need to be flexible enough and open minded enough, you know that, that what we're saying today is not necessarily going to be set in stone. It's about listening, you know. It's very much about listening as well, Alec. You know, for the whole industry, for government, you know, and 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 indeed for panels like this to try and help to guide government through the issues, yeah? And do you think, John, would it be fair to say that in a post-Brexit Britain, that uh, the climate change is the issue that Scottish government are really going to be tackling? Um, and do you think farmers are going to be re uh, receptive to that message? It's a massive opportunity, Alec, in many, in, in many ways. You know, it's, you know, every conversation you know, other than obviously COVID, COVID, COVID has overtaken so much of everything else, yeah? And obviously we need to, to have that dealt with. But let's hope with the vaccination rollout, we'll get back to some sort of, some sort of normality and we still need to trade business. The economy is hugely important. What it has kind of brought home to roost is the importance of home-produced food and traceability and understanding what we're doing and going and going about that part of the business as well, yeah? So, John, the idea behind this podcast series is that we discuss the topics that are affecting sectors that are involved in the farmed upland environment. And in this episode, I really wanted to, to dig into climate change with you, and we're going to discuss the 1.5 report. Mm -hmm. um, can you just give us a kind of summary of what the findings of the report are or what, what your current thinking uh, around the report is? Well, well the, the report, if you like, in lots of ways, is how to get to an end game of the net zero by 2045. And, uh, you know, the, 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 there, there are the state, you know, it was mapped out in, the, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of roadmap phase one, was culture change and commission. Phase two is a farmer mitigation menu. Phase three is system change to low emission production. Phase four is enabling whole farm change. And phase five is actually land use change. Now, whether it happens in that order, I mean, let's be honest about it, precision farming 
a lot of the specialist farmers are already doing it. You know, we need to work on legumes, improving that. We're working on and taking research on how we manage methane better, how we develop that. Renewables is all part of the mix. Looking at more efficient vehicles, but also the development of probably hydrogen for tractors. That's all kind of happening and we're taking research, we're looking at evidence and how we power the farm. So that's the whole you know, farm side of it. Then when you move it slightly further, it's all about you know, soil carbon. How can we soak up? How can we sequester? How can we make better use of grasslands? Now, you'll have been involved in, in the, 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 the carbon auditing. Now, quite frankly, we're just at the start of the journey. We've had our first carbon audit done. I didn't actually realise it was been done, but part of our costing scheme, I'm in, they gave me a figure. Now, what they're very good at is how to add up the points you've got. But if I had realised that was been done, we've got about 14 acres of woodland, and that's not part of the calculation. So... In terms of all of that, what you need to do, and we, you know, it's a, it's about not trying to to manipulate a score, but it's about trying to be accurate and how we can actually improve on that. And finding benchmarks, people that were involved in the beef efficiency scheme, they had worked out, you know, the the number of carbon dioxide equivalents per kilo of beef, and then going forward, there'll be an established, if you like amount of emission per, per kilo, and then that'll become the standard. And then we'll use research and develop and, 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 you know, and, and you know, advisors, consultants like yourself to try and find out, advise you know, on the information on, 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 on the lowest carbon footprint farmers and try and roll that out to try and make sure that we do that. Uh, our co-chair, Nigel Miller, obviously, hugely interested in the animal health side and one of the areas that they talk about is well if you know if you've got 100 beef cattle and you've got issues maybe like yonis or and then and the eradication of bvd is quite a classic that will actually rear less cattle but they all make the grade you know and we don't have you know the losses along the way so you have a better performance and hopefully profitability and there are less actually heads of livestock required to be done by using the health traits and working through that. So we just share information, we improve the the health the health of our herds and indeed of our flocks for for you know, in milk production, you know that there's lots of information there out through milk recording and what have you. And then there's a big discussion on about whether a grazing system or a mob grazing system is gonna actually have the lowest carbon footprint. My good friend Gary Mitchell, he would tell you where he's got about six hundred odd cows undercover doing a vat and vat massive yields. He said, you know, cows in five-star accommodation, everything's brought to them. But that's hugely efficient. And that's where we'll work back and look at, there's nothing necessarily right or necessarily wrong, as long as whatever the individual farming business practices is as good as it can be. And we don't have the wastage. 
and it's about focusing on different things. And AHDB, to be fair to them, are very good in their monitor farm projects and what have you that we actually can drive that down. Our milk buyer, First Milk, they're quite heavily into you know, like grazing and, and assessing soil carbon and what have you. And they're covering not only Scotland, but England and Wales as well. And it's important to their milk buyers. And, you know, like it's a direction of travel. And it's a case of harnessing the information and trying to track and trace and make sure that, that you know, that we can be more efficient and we don't have the wastages. And, that, you know, if you like, for some people, you know, every animal, you know, that, that's putting carbon dioxide and indeed methane out into the atmosphere, you know, is almost the enemy. Well, I, I don't see it that way. I see it that, you know, we need a good supply of highly nutritious milk. We need a good supply of highly nutritious meat and, and cattle, you know, and livestock are an important part of the grazing system of the land platform here in Scotland. You know, because cattle can improve pastures. Some of the guys even in our own area have put beef cattle back on their hillsides because it tramps down, because understocked land, you know, is actually just running to waste and not delivering the biodiversity that otherwise it possibly could, yeah? Yeah, no, no, definitely, John. Uh, you kind of touched on it there with your answer, John, but I was going to ask you, what what do we know about Scotland's agricultural contribution to climate change? There, there are a lot of facts out there and, you know, everybody will have their own facts and everybody will come to the climate change discussion with their own facts. But what what is your understanding of Scotland's contri uh, contribution to, to climate change? Well, the, the, the issue is I think we were, we're, we're supposed to be the second or third after transport as a, as a whole industry. But, I mean, I would say, quite frankly, we're taking that on the chin and we're going to address it. And, you know, every single conversation, quite frankly, Alec, you can't turn your back on it. It's there. It's alive. It's about how we deal with it and, and the way ahead. One of the great things that we do have here in Scotland and the huge opportunity is the fact that we actually have about five and a half million hectares. And of that, about a million are, are good, arable, good arable land. And it's important that that good arable land continue, you know, continues to supply the, the, you know, the Scottish food and drink ambitious targets. When you start moving into some of the land, you know, and again, get the, the, it's more upland, more difficult to farm, that perhaps, you know, is producing relatively lower yields, but still providing the biodiversity. That's where we'll be looking at putting in, you know, serious shelter belting and get some of the agroforestry into there. But by improving that, I think, you know, I would expect, you know, it might need to go a slightly carrot stick approach, but as part of the compliance, part of the greening, part of Boris's agenda, public money for public goods, and this will be part of it. And again, in Scotland, we've got a devolved administration and, and the Scottish government want to be part of that. But, I, you know, the forestry is big in Scotland, but it, it will actually be bigger and we've got to encourage it. And if we use some of the data that we're actually starting to look at, you know, just 
kind of quietly and privately, and it's important that, you know, this is a listening process as well, and I take your, your, you know, your feedbacks on it. But an effective hectare of, of, of trees can sequester about, uh, um, about five tonnes equivalent of carbon dioxide a year. And in the carbon credit market, it ranges between 30 to 50 pounds a tonne equivalent. So effectively, we could have, a, if you had 50 pounds per tonne carbon dioxide equivalent as a carbon credit, then that could work out at 100 pounds an acre for, 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 for forest land. And that's only the carbon sequestration element. So what we really need to do is get the landowners and the land managers to work together to think seriously. This is an enormous income stream that we really need to push and promote and direct significant resources because the money will be there out of the carbon credit market as businesses basically have to offset. If you're in the middle of a town and you're running a factory, you know, and understandably, you, you, you're going to have emissions. So we'll need to turn and we need a... A, a, a better developed carbon credit market, but it's international and it's global, but we need to do that. South of the border, <clears throat> pardon me, the, the, the English, English government, um, DEFRA, I do believe in actual fact, had, had have agreed to purchase a significant amount of carbon credits, and we need to develop that here in Scotland. Because not only do we do that, but we provide agri the, the whole forestry industry, which is good, but we'll provide even more. And Scotland could be a real powerhouse, a real income stream going forward. But that's not compromising agriculture, you know, like, like hanging it out to dry by any sense or stretch of the imagination. Because in some of the really upland land, the, you know, the, when people talk about you know lambing percentage of 75-80% in, 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 in a hell of a black loss in their sheep, we need to be able to help these guys you know, that are farming there to get decent slugs or shelter belting land that would qualify for the carbon credit, qualify for greening payments and improve their productivity. And by improving that and, um, <clears throat> and having shelter belts and, and, and the road and the infrastructure, they would get the big bale silage further up the hill, they get the sheep, their cattle further up the hill, the tram, they improve and we'll get the biodiversity and we'll get, you know, We've got a win-win-win situation, you know, and frankly, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. Listening to you, John, it sounds very much like we've heard an awful lot of talk about this green recovery post-COVID, but listening to you, I'm, I'm hearing you more talking about a, a, an almost a green revolution. Um, it, Scottish government have, have set some pretty ambitious targets with regards to, to climate change. We know that they're looking to see 60% reductions in emissions from agriculture by 2030. You mentioned 2045, their, their ultimate end goal. Is that 2030 target achievable or realistic in your opinion? If, if the appropriate level of compensation is made to people who actually can make the difference, and I'm talking about the, you know, the significant landowners. I wouldn't be talking about highly productive farmers like your dad, 
right, who have a relatively small acreage, but an enormous, highly productive unit. These people have got to be allowed to get on and develop their businesses because they're doing a cracking job. What we need to also watch is that we don't end up to hit all of our targets offshore by importing soya and, and maize and everything from all over the, the planet just to make our own figures look better. Offshoring is a real danger. So that's why the highly productive lands that we have within Scotland are left to produce. You know, they've been the breadbasket of Scotland and that we look to the other land and land holdings and encourage the landowners and whether it's whether it be owners and tenants or the relationship you know at when I chaired legal and technical for five years we came across with lots of issues between landlords and tenants and I understand that there are issues between landlords and tenants. But frankly this issue is far, far bigger. If we talk about you know Woodland being down 25, 30 year projects, then they would need to share the spoils and share the risk and share the responsibility. But if the correct level of compensation and it's agreed that a level of compensation will be there. But if I, you know, it's a figure, as I said, if you're talking at £100 an acre for productive woodland, I think it'll turn a few heads and we'll make the greening payment part of that and what have you. I mean, I'm only talking some of the thought process that's going on, but I welcome the input from others. But in fact, in fact I mean, put it this way, I believe we could make it happen and we could make it happen very, very quickly. In terms of the other, John, so just let me come back on to the other, you know, the, the productive land in terms of controlling, you know, like um, a precision fertilizer usage in terms of better use of, 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 of crop rotations, you know, and a greater understanding of, of methane, you know, that's all part of the process as well, yeah. And uh, methane's quite a contentious emission in and of itself. Uh, John, you, we know that the livestock sectors are, are seeing a lot of pushback from activist groups out there suggesting that we should have less livestock to, to combat climate change. Where do you stand on that issue? Well, you're absolutely right from, from what you're saying. We're getting a lot of kickback, but it comes back to what I kind of mentioned earlier. If we can produce you know, the same from a lower number of livestock, that'll be great. But, you know, by trying to have, um, shall we say, less, less health issues, probably some vaccination programs that would be required, like so for your BVD and for things like that, that we're, that we're trying really, really hard to get rid of. Um, you know, your, your ammonias, your scours, your mastitis, you know, all these things... Like, end up you know, being a cost and a wastage in the industry. And that's why the animal health programs are really, really important. But there's been quite an interesting piece of work done uh, at Edinburgh, Edinburgh Uni. And genetically, there are some cattle, you know, strange genes of cattle that are, that are much lower emitters of methane than others. And that'll be, you know, as I say, if we use breeding indexes and we use the genomic profiling, if we can identify the genes that will actually produce lower um, CH4 emitters on cattle, then, it, then it, it will be a game changer. But that's where the research and the development needs to go, and, and, and we're up for it.
And John, just to touch on some of the things that were mentioned in, in some of the reports that you guys have been working on. Soil has got a lot of coverage in the report and you mentioned the importance of soil earlier. Can you just expand on that a little bit and, and where you see soil fitting into the, the climate change strategy for Scotland? Well, soil is, I mean, soil is the most important like fabric in the whole thing in terms of, in term, you know, I think if we go back, the current payment scheme, you know, area-based or what have you, and go back to the McSherry report when Europe was awash with food and wine lakes and butter mountains and what have you, and farmers were told back then, you don't need to produce the food anymore. We have an abundant supply and you will get a payment. You will get an area payment based on your historic activity and it's fine. And a good number of people, a good number of people said, that's fine. We'll get a payment. We don't need you in. And that's fine. But what we're now realizing is that, you know, that's not fit for purpose. And so much good land has been neglected. It's not performing. And it's not performing because the soil structure has been allowed to be neglected. Fields that formerly were producing good crops of silage, good crops of grass for grazing, are a field of rashes. A complete and utter waste. What we don't know, quite frankly, is we don't know in terms of carbon sequestration what each ground covering produces. We don't know whether heather is good for carbon sequestration. We don't know whether peat, well, peat is, 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 there's a lot of talk about the rest, restoration of peat wetlands. Now, some of that might be to do with carbon sequestration and some of it could do with biodiversity. But there's a big push to get a lot of peat. But peat's quite a difficult soil to work anyway, and it's not normally part of the breadbasket. But what we are looking at is, you know, liming all of a sudden. People have realised, again, naturally, that lime and your pH not only helps the productivity, it helps the porosity in terms of how easily drained land is and everything else. And lime, as Scottish Government, given their due, have finally recognised that lime is an important part of soil fertility, keeping these pHs up will help to sequester more carbon dioxide out of the, <clears throat> out of the atmosphere. That's a, an interesting issue that you raised, John, because there will be some people listening to this who think that the breakdown of, of lime, of, of calcium carbonate, can only contribute to, to climate change. But what you're saying is that the, the benefits uh, are... Uh, are, are uh, something that that's that's worth uh proceeding with the the activity and that that liming is very much worth doing i think possibly as well alec in the situation where the farmers that are prepared to, to apply lime will probably be applying a little bit of bagged fertilizer and the, the important thing there is that your bagged fertilizer your nps in case particularly your nitrogen, will be, have a better utilisation when the pH is better, when your pH is, you know, are, are, are up there in around six. You know, when you apply your bag fertiliser, you will get a far higher hit on that. There was a, one of our, one of our, our um, Zoom calls 
was on you know, was all about fertilizer and the nitrogen losses into the atmosphere and what have you but quite frankly if you if we take it to the other extreme organic land versus you know well farmed farmland you would need three times the acreage and that's even even in a good organic system so like if people are going to go down the organic route, they would need to be prepared. They would need to have, you know, as an industry, as a you know, you know as a policy di director, you would need to have three times the amount of land. So I think the amount of land, good land that we have, is relatively finite. What we want to do is make a better job of what we've actually got. Yeah. And one of the things, John, just to move away from soil now, We've heard a lot of talk about the uh, the importance of, of technical performance, um, and I believe you guys are, are working on a series of recommendations within uh, the the work that you're doing the now. Can you just talk a little bit about the importance of, of technical performance and, and raising the standard of practice in Scotland? Because I know you, you talked about eliminating waste earlier on and the, the, the potential benefits from that. Well, the, 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 there are sector-specific groups. There's a dairy sector-specific group and, 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 and a beef special, um, specialist group. Um, and, the, well, it's, it's um, Jackie McCreary that's doing the dairy one. And I don't think they've actually – they might have had one or two meetings that I was supposed to be invited to one, but we've not had that one yet. Um, but Jim Walker and the beef group – They've 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 published their report and you know it's, it's quite interesting. They talk about you know the importance of, of of you know grazing and 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 converting it into protein and it's probably as an efficient way of you know converting if you like upland grassland into protein to feed people. The Andrew Moyer. He's, he's, he's the, the chair of, of the specialist cereals group and uh, a lot of these cereal guys, particularly Andrew and, and his team, you know, they will technically, they will be quite efficient. They will know that, you know, the, the right amount of fertilizer for the right ground type of the right. And it's a case of getting that information. But as I say, we're at quite an early stage with the carbon auditing to actually identify just exactly what the correct levels are going to be but we're going to it's you know this is the start of the journey you know, it's the start of the journey it's going to be a very rapid journey and the likes of SIUC and and the, and the other advisors and consultants out there you know there're not many weeks or months go by but there's not a, a latest piece of research on what might be the right way ahead and i, I would say by 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 the close of of this year certainly going on next year. Actually, you know, the consultation process will be closed and the decision-making and the direction of travel will be agreed. Not to say that it won't have to be tweaked, but that'll be the, that, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in listening and gathering mode and we know the we know the direction we want to go in, that's for sure. I think most people within the industry have got that, they've got that message, yeah. You mentioned carbon auditing there, John. In the months since the Sustainable Agriculture Capital Grant came out, we've seen a great uptake in the interest of, of uh, carbon auditing. Is that something that you welcome? Is carbon auditing kind of the direction that you want to see things moving in? 
Well, the bottom the bottom line is if you're going to try and like monitor and measure something and and gauge performance and 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 try and track a trajectory that you want to go on until you've actually got that you know that first audit to start understanding basically what's a new language you know when you actually start you know the number of kilos of carbon dioxide equivalent to produce a liter of milk or 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 a, or, or a kilo of beef or or a ton of grain until we actually start understanding that language and get familiar with that language, we're not going to be able to really be effective. And I know that there are there are some banks out there now, John, who will tell you that you know you will not get funding for your agricultural project without a carbon audit, and they view it almost as important as a. a, a uh, financial accounts, uh, a set of financial accounts. Well, that's what I say. You know, the whole carbon debate, the whole greening debate, is you know, it's it you know, it's international. You know, it's it's international, and we want to be you know on the front foot on it, and we want to make sure that what we do is correct. We want to make sure it's appropriate. And we want to make sure it's workable. And the important thing is that we we don't dive in with two feet, that we actually understand what we're recommending and we understand what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And that's why, you know, as I say, the next 12, 24 months max, you know, decisions, you know, serious decisions as to how we're going to get there will, will be in train. And uh, John, I mentioned the Sustainable Agriculture Capital Grant Scheme there. What was your opinion of the the grant scheme? Were you in favour of it? Do, do you think that it's going to have some long term benefits for Scottish agriculture? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that they were talking about, you know, and and we've been we've been part of it. Probably the, the heaviest purchase that we'll that we'll have on it for our umbilical slurry system. We're going on to we're, we're, we're purchased. Uh, it's not here yet, but a dribble bar, and it's so that you're not firing slurry up into the atmosphere that will get it much more into the ground. Just like, like more or less drop droplets as as it, as it goes along. Um, I think the other thing that you know, just a slight diversion. I don't think. That um, the the NVZ idea is particularly clever because what happens is when you've got a closed season, it's a slightly, it is a divergence. But Scottish government need to understand and realise that the likes of you know good grass growing areas, not just Kintyre, but Wigton and, and and good parts of Ayrshire as well, but other parts of the country as well. If you've got a a, a growing season that can almost last ten twelve months. You know, if it, if the ground conditions are right, it's actually far more important to have you know little drops of slurry on all of the time or done all of the time rather than this closed window and then all of a sudden you're shut down for three, four, six months, whatever they're proposing. It's a nonsense because then the slurry stores get full if you get excessive water and what have you, or you build even more massive ones. But at the end of the day, when it comes to open season, everybody's at it. And then if you do get a heavy downpour, you have far greater risk. And that's a bit of work that we need to do and we need to try and convince 
with the Scottish government because they want to try and force farmers down the road of you know uh, having a cleaner, greener environment. That's not the right way to go about it. The right way to go about it is to make sure that people can quietly work away to one field, to go another field, go around another one, and just quietly work away. And as long as the grass is growing and you don't have excessive applications and you protect your water courses, then it is, it's, it's a much better way forward. Yep. And I've been telling Scottish Government that and will not, and will not be holding back on telling them that either, yeah? In terms of the sustainable grant, yeah, the, the, there's lots of good, the, you know, there's been lots of good, it was maligned at the start by some people, goodness knows why, but I mean, the uptake has been fantastic and that's great. But more importantly, going forward in the, in the discussions when I came off NFUS, because, well, I was retired and I was going on to, well, I was involved in 1.5 before I came off, but... From Scottish government's point of view and from you know, sustainable agriculture and what have you, and we'll look at a Scottish picture, one of the, the big concerns I have for the dairy sector, but it's also for other sectors also, in, in the dairy sector, there's nearly 200 million litres of milk produced in Scotland that gets processed south of the border. Now, that's not appropriate. You know, what we need to do is have large-scale processing capacity in Scotland because we've got probably the key ingredient to producing milk and that's water. You know, globally, I, I, I watch videos of, of California and what have you and they have a huge, huge war almost over there about who's getting the water. Is it going to be, you know, the, the thousand cow dairy unit? Or is it going to be the grain farmers or is it going to be the people? And that's where they've got a huge problem. We've enough water here, we can share it among everybody and nobody will be that worried. So we've got that water resource, we've got good grassland capabilities, we've kind of extended grazings. But what we also need, and again, in terms of Scottish Government funding, in terms of being part of a fairer Britain and what have you, we need a good processing capacity, large scale, similar to what they have at Haverford West, similar to what they have in the Lake District. We need something like that. It, you know, and it, this is not, not new stuff because we, I said that last year at NFU AGM when it was coming off this year. We need a decent, you know, large scale, probably 200 million facility in about the Greenock Belt somewhere. So it would serve Renfrew, it would serve Kintyre, it would serve Butte, and it would serve the Central Belt as well. So we've got active dairies there and not too heavy a concentration, you know, the, 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 the every valley, every every area, you know, like, because that's when you overpopulate an area with the same, you know, industry. The, it's, it's, it poses more risk, shall we say. It does create efficiency, but that's where I would say. And then if you've got the size and scale and capacity, you can have the carbon recovery links that they've got. It, they've got a biogas plant off the creamery at LDC, and that can reduce the carbon footprint enormously. But that's where we need to go as well. Rather than necessarily, if we go back to SRDP, in Scotland, the money went to the farms. In Ireland, the money went to processing capacity. Um and that's why they had the infrastructure like in the in the, in the processing side, but not the infrastructure in the farming side. So I would say the next generation of funding 
particularly in terms of dairying. But also if we look at our beef sector, we look at our pork sector, we look at our veg sector, and indeed our grain sector. If we don't, if you build a good processing plant or help to invest, or if the grain buying groups or whatever are together and they want you know, support to improve their dryers or to change something or to have additional storage and capacity, that's where a good applications you know, and and for Scotland, and when we visited with the milk committee, we visited the Stranraer plant last year, the Lactalis plant, and they had you know good good lines there, and they're they're exporting quite a lot of their cheese. But supposing this new venture, supposing it was a joint venture owned by Scottish government, if necessary, with partners in there and out to franchise or whatever, it needs to be a dedicated. It could be a a dedicated export hub out of Scotland, and that could be south of the border or it could be part of the whole new global arrangement. But that really needs to be where we put the real money because if you've got a factory or a facility or a processing plant, then the farming industries can grow and develop because they, they know where their milk will go or their, or their produce will go. And that's how we'll develop a strong, effective Scottish agriculture. Giving them a, a, an idea of of long-term prospects and, and some confidence in the industry, yeah. Yeah, size, size, scale, efficiency, and locality. And, John, we've talked a little bit about climate change and, and what your views are on, on climate change and how we combat climate change going forward. I would argue that something that's almost equally as important, if not more so, would be biodiversity decline in Scotland. And, and we know that Scottish government have made this a big priority. We've just seen the relaunch of our restricted funding round for the Agri-Environment Climate Scheme. And reading through your report, it's clear that biodiversity can't be sidelined and that, you know, agriculture has a constructive role to play in promoting biodiversity. Can you just discuss that a little bit? Well, but, you know, in any of these situations, you know, if we have, you know, a productive livestock and 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 arable and arable sector, and we we'll have some some good woodland and whatever. The biodiversity will all it all feeds off it. It's when nothing's happening, you know, and lands left you know to abandon, and, and or fields are just more or less just left unproductive. Then. Nothing happens because if, even if you see a field being ploughed and you see all the gulls coming down and you, you and you, and you see activity, you see earthworms, you 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 see the you know the rabbits and the wildlife. They all you know because they all feed off of productivity and, and activity and the field margins and what have you. You, you know. No, definitely, definitely. And, John, your report, you've already mentioned a, a plan of attack in, in for 2024. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the plan is post-2024 and how will you track the benefits um, of actions against climate change? Well, I guess a lot will depend on how much we've achieved by the time we get to 2024. But, I mean, you know, the end game is there. And if if... If things progress as they want, because this is where you need to see how quickly people wish to respond. You need to see how quickly 
If I use an example, we had a meeting not that long ago on Zoom, and you know it's all about all encompassing and making sure everyone's with us. And in one of the discussions, we had you know a really good representation, and it was the Glasgow Allotments Group. And how they would love to have more people getting soil on that on their hands and growing their potatoes and what have you. Now that's important and they're part of the group, but I would kind of argue that it's the people were a thousand acres and some of these big hill places were more than five thousand acres. We need to to get the speed of change that's going to be required and get decent slugs into forestry and give them the compensation and sort out landlord-tenant issues with them and get that happening quickly, then it takes a lot of pressure off the other side of the equation to get there on, 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 on a more managed way. Go for the big wins, the quick wins, you know, basically, in my view, the easy wins first. They talk a wee bit about agroforestry as well. Um, one of my colleagues on, on, on the panel has done a very good report. And, but to protect individual trees, it's cost nearly £26 a tree because of all the other attack from, you know, from deer and sheep and everything else. To protect the sheep, roughly speaking, that's what they're calling for. And as I walk down the, the street or drive down the street, what I see in in the towns and in the you know and, and in the parks, trees don't need that level of protection. Individual trees don't need that level of protection, and that would be where I would think an individual trees, you know, should be on perhaps you know council land in towns in villages and and even people with larger gardens you know if there was some sort of discount on on if you like even on their domestic rates supported by government if they're two if you had a big garden and you needed you, you know and you you planted two or three trees i think it would be a far better spend you know i mean it's not that i'm against individual trees but i just find it at £26 a tree, it's quite expensive, you know, relative to, like, you know, a good blanket shelter belt. And, you know, when I talk about a decent shelter belt, to be efficient, probably, you know, somewhere about 10 hectares, a good strip that would actually be effective and provide a bit of biodiversity, provide shelter and probably improve the lambing and calving percentages, and, and just basically exposure and exposure and starvation will be the biggest single loss of of, of lambs and hill farms, and indeed probably outdoor calving, calving in, in, in upland beef units as well. And John, where do you stand on the issue of crofts and small farms and where they fit into Scotland's climate strategy? You've talked a little bit about the farmed upland uh, estates um, and, and, you know, maybe the potential and the scope there. But where do crofts and small farms fit in for you? Crofts and small farms are, are, are no different from anyone else in that if the land has been well farmed, it's, you know, if it's if it's been limed, if it's been farmed, if it's been looked after, 
you know, and and if you like, the, if if the ground covering the grass, if it's grassland, you know, that we'll try and get some clover and, and legumes incorporated in, in the grass seed mixture so we're drawing more nitrogen out of the atmosphere and more productivity you know and possibly you know and and less bagged fertilizer you know because your nitrous oxide's a bit of a problem if it's not utilized in the ground so if the ph is right then there'll be less wastage crofts are hugely important you know like and, and the reason I mentioned smaller farms was to make sure that they didn't feel disadvantaged because people were tending to have smaller acres of land will be making a better job per acre on the, on the whole because everyone is so important to them, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, John, I always ask people, the my, my speakers who, who join us for the podcast series, this is always the, the final question. Is there anything happening in the industry right now, John, that you think that people should be paying more attention to? Something that you want to spotlight, something that you think is particularly important, um, something that you want to draw attention to? Well, I think the one I highlighted, Alec, and I would come back on to every time, and it's a real one that will be the game changer, and that's the carbon credits on the forestry. A good acre, I'm sorry, a good hectare of land by all accounts, over the 25-30 year period, should sequester five tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent. In the carbon credit market, that equates between 30 and £35 per tonne. So that could, for a a well-managed forestry with the right tree in the right place, it could deliver £100 an acre. And that's where we need to go. And actually, it'd be decent compensation, and the wood and the forestry activity will be an additional income stream. So I would be targeting people to say, go for that hundred pounds an acre as much as you possibly can to fit in with your own system. John Smith for the Farm Advisory Service. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thrill of the Hill part of Scotland's Farm Advisory Service podcast. If you have any questions about any of the content covered here today, please do not hesitate to get in touch at 0300 323 0161 or contact us by email at advice at faz.scot.